Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, the resilient podcast out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. What is friendship? How do we know somebody? What does that even mean? I asked this question of you because this is a person that I've gotten to know over the last two years in this season of my life. But I've never actually physically been in his presence. Stan Prager is a businessman. He has a master's degree in history. He is a blogger. He is a podcaster. He is a very interesting man. And his blog is called the Regarp Book Blog. It's very interesting. And actually, I have been wanting to do this show for quite a while uh, before I even asked him. We're on Twitter together, and you might remember he was a guest I had um, earlier in my show's incarnation when it was basically just pretty much a straight-up history show. But the reason I wanted to have him on, again, is because his show, um, basically his show, which is his podcast where he does these book reviews, is very interesting because he relates these books to just average people. And I think that's important. And I think that his mission of exposing average people to, you know, works of history, works of literature. Um, He's done The Epic of Gilgamesh as a review. He's done science books. He's done Leopold's Ghost, which was a very influential book on King Leopold of Belgium's exploits in the Congo, which were quite draconian and terrible despite the fact that in his own country he was thought of as a liberal monarch and somebody whom in his own country had very little power indeed. I think Stan's podcast and his blog are very, very important because he's essentially continuing the work of school for adults. And I think that's critical, especially in times like these, when education is being called into question in pretty much all sorts of quarters that it never was called into question in other times. You know, I I really do think we're going to see a a profound change even in what education is and what it does. But I think Stan is fighting a good fight And I'd like to expose his blog and actually his podcast and, you know, some of his thoughts that you're going to hear in this podcast to to my audience. Um, Anyway, so yeah, that's, that's that introduction. I'd also like to say that Here we are in this revolution. And I told Stan this earlier, almost two years ago, in fact, that Stan 
we are in a technological revolution, and I think we should talk about this. And one of my missions on this podcast is to essentially go to Gutenberg's shop floor and to explore what content creation and what independent content creation are and expose that to a wider universe. And I've done this, you know, several times with other people, and I will continue to do this, hopefully. Um, And I wanted to say that I think this is a, you know, it's an important thing historically to, to talk to people of today's day and to realize that we are maybe not media giants for sure, but we have a presence in the world that we didn't used to have. And we're, we're kind of navigating that in ways, you know, that we're not used to doing. There's a, a very famous podcaster who certainly doesn't need my shout-out, who once said that he thought that navigating the Internet these days was sort of like driving 70 miles an hour on a foggy road with your lights off. And, and one of the ways in which this turns out is we have to ask ourselves all the time, is this appropriate? Does somebody... You know, would somebody listen to this? And and I guess, like, my rule of thumb has always been, well, if I'm interested, you know, I'm going to put it out there. And I guess my other thing I always look at is, does this educate people? And I think that's mainly the role here, is to catalog what what this life is like right now. And also... You know, I don't want to say I'm I'm here to entertain you, but what I am trying to do on a certain level is to create what one of my listeners called oddly entertaining and engaging content, and I I hope to some degree I'm I'm doing that. Um, but anyway, that's enough of me. I I want to give it over to Stan and myself from yesterday and uh, I'll talk to you guys later bye bye hey everybody my name is Ben Kitchings there are a zillion podcasts out there thank you for very very much for listening to mine I'm here with Stan Prager who, among other things, is a blogger and a podcaster. And Stan, I've been reading your blog for a while now, and it's just really, I just really think it's cool. Hey, thanks. I have, I have more questions than answers at this point. Well, that's good. That's that's the whole point of a, of a blog, right? <laughs> okay. So you do a book review blog. It's called a Regarp Book Blog. Yep. Okay. All right. And the thing I love about it is you don't just do like modern, but like current books or books that just came out. You you go back like you did Gilgamesh. You did uh, I should say like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, I've done the Iliad. I've done books written in the 1950s. I've done books written, you know, this year. 
Um, I, I, I've done the, mm. I've done the full realm and the, and the main reason is to, uh, because I believe that the problem today with uh, book reviews is that they're all focused on books soon to be released or just released. And to me, that's a disservice because, um, obviously there's, there's millions of books out there, right? And there's mm -hmm. a lot to read. Uh, and in order for people to really immerse themselves in literature, nonfiction, fiction, whatever it might, might be. They really need to know what's out there and you know just staying with what's current is not going to give you the immersion that you need so that's kind of the the point behind the regard for book blog so something that i mean we're we're of a kindred spirit here so when i used to write movie reviews one of the things i told my editor was i wanted to do like what he called throwback reviews because to me like the best detective movie ever made was chinatown that's right up there. That's so, right up there. Absolutely. Love that so you, movie. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if you're doing, like, the Black Dahlia remake with Josh Hartnett, you have to dialogue with Chinatown. Whether you want a dialogue or not, Absolutely. you're in a dialogue with Chinatown. Absolutely. And Chinatown was the better movie. But, yes, you're definitely in a For dialogue. Real? <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't reference it without the other. And, and, I, th and, I, and I get your point. I think that's true with... Uh, with literature, uh, with nonfiction, uh, with mm -hmm. fiction across the board, um, mm -hmm. you know, and and I also think it's important that you know my my own reading tastes tend to be eclectic, so I like the blog to reflect that. Now there tends to be more nonfiction and more history on there because that's primarily what I read these days. But there's also literature and fiction and science and general nonfiction and you know all kinds of stuff uh, in the mix there. So there should be something for everybody. What was the one about, okay, I'm going to butcher the title. It was like Journey to the Center of the Earth, but it wasn't Jules Verne. It was about going to the Earth's core. Yeah. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Yeah, that was uh, Into the Heart of the Earth, I believe. I'm pretty sure that was the uh, the, the exact title of it. Um, so the idea was is that um, the guy decided, the author of the book decided that he was going to use journey to the center of the earth as a guide for his nonfiction book about traveling to the center of the earth, what that would be like from a science perspective. And let me correct myself. It's into the heart of the world is the correct title, um, mm -hmm. which I, which I forgot. But um, the point is, is the author, David Whitehouse, who's a, a scientist and a journalist, uh, his goal was to make this book more interesting by using the, the literary guide uh, of the journey to the center of the earth. And it actually works very well. It's a, it's a great technique. Uh, and he's not the first person to do that. Uh, James Glick did a book uh, on uh, time travel, which uses uh, the time machine as kind of its, its guide. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I love the interplay between fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. And yep. I don't know if you're a veteran or... I, I am not. Okay. All right. So, but one thing I've noticed is like our literature, like all war literature or all war fiction or all war movies or just whatever are kind of influenced by Vietnam to some way or another. How do you stuff, think, yeah. how do you think, uh, Afghanistan and whatever we're going to call this thing in Ukraine is going to influence our literature going forward. 
Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm certainly no expert in this uh, in this realm. Um, and But I would like to back up just a second to preface this by saying I think the greatest war literature in ever was the Iliad, um, which I've read four different translations of, and I'll probably read a fifth one. I believe that's the greatest book on war uh, because that really captures what, what war is all about for all the, you know, all the horror and all the glory and all the cowardice and all the bravery and, you know, and, and everything, all, all the pieces of it and the way mm. people who are warriors react to it. As far as what the future is going to hold, I mean, I think when we look into history, I think we're going to we're going to see. And, and you know, I, I have a I'm not sure if you know this, but I have a master's in history. And so that's one of the reasons why a lot of the books on the Regard book blog are, are history books. But um, uh, history fascinates me in many ways, uh, largely because, um, you know, I'm not sure. It, it's alleged that Mark Twain said it, but uh, we're not we're not 100 percent sure. But but a comment attributed to Mark Twain was that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think that's an apt way of putting it. Whoever whoever's really um, should be credited with uh, with saying that. Um, I believe if you look at history in the future, maybe 50 years from now or what have you, there's going to be a line and that line is going to be 2020, which was the beginning of the pandemic and how the world changed after that. And I think that the, you know, what's going on currently, uh, world affairs, Ukraine, et cetera, that's all going to be grouped into that. This is going to be a new kind of starting point for a new chapter in, in, in global history. I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, the problem with doing this orally is you couldn't see me nod. <laughs> but yes, I, was, I, get I was I was nodding. <laughs> yes. I, I, I get you. I, I get yeah. you. And and I mean everyone has a way of separating history and putting history into different uh uh different formats. You know, when you study history in school, they tend to chop it up into a fairly well accepted textbook format. So you've got like a certain period of time and they call that whatever in American history or in global history or what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, so from a big history standpoint, everything changed around uh, uh, 1492, the Columbian experience. The entire world changed. Mm -hmm. So you can take a whole chapter from a big history standpoint. The last five, six hundred years, that's all been since the that Columbian experience. But then you've got in, you know, in other in, in other formats that you look at history, it's going to be obviously put into smaller eras. Um, you've got what they call uh, the long 19th century for Europe, which is uh, the French Revolution through World War I. Uh, there's lots of different ways to segment history. And I think it's interesting to do it. One of my favorites is when you talk about the 60s, to my mind, the 60s began with the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy and ended with uh, the resignation of Richard Nixon. That does not correspond with the calendar. But that corresponds with, if you're going to look at what the 60s mean, that corresponds to that. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, we're living through this now, we won't know what historians 50 years from now will see. But my guess is, there's going to be certain periods segmented, and one of those is going to start in 2020. So, before COVID, like before I had this podcast on COVID, and I, I just want to piggyback with what you're saying um, but before COVID, I, I would have said that the biggest thing I ever did was I was a reporter in a, on a small-time newspaper who accidentally ended up covering the housing crash before the housing crash happened. Ba air quotes happened, basically. Yep. And so I would say the 20th century sort of stopped 
around 2005 <laughs> or 2006 for sure. Yeah. But yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, one of the things that strikes me talking to all these people about COVID and the world we live through now is people started realizing that these computers are totally essential, right? They're, they're completely essential tools for our, our existence now where they weren't before. That's an uh, interesting point. And I, I would, I would add to that, that um, as you, as you probably know, but most people don't know who follow my book blog, I also own a computer services company and we mm -hmm. manufacture PCs as well. And we have a lot of, uh, you know, we focus on the residential market, unlike a lot of other computer companies. And uh, a lot of our, our clients are, uh, are elderly, probably 30% of their, our, our clients are, are 80 years or older. Our oldest clients are 97. I think I have three or four that are 97. Um, and all of them, uh, I believe their quality of life and perhaps their ability even to live was impacted by the fact that they had a working computer in their home during the pandemic. Because I think about the fact that when I grew up in the 60s, uh, if, if something mm -hmm. like this occurred, not only would there probably have been a complete economic collapse across the board, but you would have had a lot of elderly people who would not have made it because there'd be no way for them to order things to be delivered, food, medicine. They would not be able to stay in touch. They would have been so isolated in quarantine that it would have done tremendous psychological damage. Not to say that isolation, even with a computer, didn't cause tremendous psychological damage among all segments of the population, mm -hmm. all cohorts. But I think elderly people who, in general, don't tend to go out a lot, especially in the winter in the Northeast, where I, where I live, mm -hmm. um, you don't have a lot of elderly people who are out traveling around, even in the best of circumstances, when it's, you know, the, the temperatures are in the 20s. Uh, it, you know, during COVID, that sense of isolation was certainly magnified dramatically. Um, oh, yeah. And so the, the segue to this also is is the um, back to the books. Um, that's one of the great advantages is that people were able to follow what was going on out there. They were able to order books, for instance, and have them delivered to their home. Or they could read them digitally for those who like e-ink. Um, but, you know, one way or the other, people could do that kind of thing. And, and I've had people who are clients of mine in the computer company who also follow my book blog have tied those two together in conversation saying, you know, I, it was so wonderful. I saw your latest uh, uh, post at www.regarp.com and, you know, or I listened to the podcast and, and then I, you know, I, I went online and I ordered the book, which warms my heart. Yeah. No, I'm all, I mean, you, you just put out a new entry, the, your entry, uh, King Leopold's Ghost. Um, and I've always wanted to read that book. I, I've never gotten around to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating book. Fascinating. Uh, Adam R. Hodgechild. Fascinating book and, uh, um, you know, about something that most people are completely unaware of. You know, what, what went on in, um, in the Belgian Congo. Uh, you know, the, the terrible inhumanity. Most people don't realize that um, the, uh, the, the apocalypse now uh, was took its uh, was guided by that experience in the Belgian Congo. Uh, you know, it's a yeah. it's it's a very it's, it's a disturbing experience. But again, there's the segue between history and literature and film and what have you. So like Joseph Conrad. The author, the original, I guess the original. That was the original, yes. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Thank you for that. My my brain was searching for it. Yes, Joseph yeah. Conrad was the original 
he he wrote the original short story, which Apocalypse Now was based on, which was all based on that actual experience in the Belgian Congo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and the thing I remember, so like, I mean, probably like you, I went back to college, and while I was um, going back to college, I think the book came out and. Maybe it's just the college I went to. Maybe it's the kind of minds I was around or whatever. But yep. I feel like literally I could not move on that campus for like a year without somebody. Oh, my God. Have you read this book? Like, oh, yeah. Gotta read it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's no yeah. doubt about it. There's uh, yeah, that uh, that certainly happens. Um, and yeah. uh it, and I mean, I think it's kind of sad in many ways that um, that people aren't reading books to the same degree that they did in the past. But every now and then I'm heartened. I see, uh, you know, an explosion in used bookstores again, uh, which means that the interest is, is, is out there, at least among uh, a certain segment of the population. Uh, uh, by the way, you, you might wonder why I have a book blog, but then I also have a podcast of the book blog. Um, pe- people have asked yeah. me this question. Um, I, I didn't originally. Uh, it was a suggestion uh, made to me by my cousin, who uh, you know, because my my first thought was that it was counterintuitive. If you're going to read books, why would you want to listen to a podcast about the book? You know, nothing against podcasts, but I just didn't understand like why <laughs> that would be the case. But then it became clear that there were a lot of people who didn't want to take the time to read reviews. They wanted to hear the review and then actually read the book, which made a lot more sense. And so that's why I began doing it. Yeah. Well, I'm somebody that the whole reason I even know what a podcast is, is because I do a lot of exercising. Yep. You know, I do a lot of that. And, you know, I got tired of listening to music, you know, not tired, but I wanted to, learn something while i was you know exercising right and um which led me to podcasting and eventually like i discovered dan carlin but hey i love this time like i if we can solve the whole like assuming we can not have a world war three or you know whatever i i love this time because i feel like there's all this knowledge that if you know how to get to it like you can learn, um, you know, which I thought you were going to say, like, why do you have a podcast? Well, I thought you were going to say, like, how is a business owner having a book blog? Because that's a question that I arrived at really early on in my relationship with your with your bot, with your blog is how does a business owner have time to read all these books? Well, I wanted to uh, do something that would make me absolutely no money. No, I'm just kidding. But it does make me absolutely no money. I, uh, you know, when I, a lot of people thought I was crazy when I went back to get my, uh, my, my master's degree in history back, uh, I, which I, which I got in 2014 when I, when I, when I finished, but you know, I, I was an undergrad in the eighties. So a lot of people thought it was kind of crazy and I own a technology company. So, you know, why would you be doing that? But, you know, I've always loved history. My undergrad major was history and I really wanted to get a degree in it, but I didn't have any, people thought I was kind of nuts because I didn't have any real practical application to how I was going to use it. Um, And actually I did find some practical application afterwards, but that's a whole nother side story. But for the most part, my goal was really my own personal self-development. And so that's why I went forward with that. And then uh, while I was in the course of that, 
I happened to, uh, I, I, I had a professor who had read a book review that I did that I posted on Amazon. And then she read another one. And then she like clicked on my name and saw that I'd written it because I'd done a few book reviews in the past on Amazon. And, and she said to me that, you know, you really should have a book blog. And I was like, you think so? I mean, I, it never occurred to me. They, I never, it, it never occurred to me I would do something like that. And she's like, really, it's, it's a wonderful thing for your mind um, to write reviews about books you've read because it helps reinforce what you learn from the book. And she paid me wonderful compliments on my writing skills and, and suggested that it was really important that I share my insights with other people. So I began doing that. And, you know, it, it, it was very successful. And then what I started doing was sending out copies of the reviews to the authors which sometimes that's easy and sometimes it isn't. If they're on Twitter, it's real easy. If they're not, sometimes it's difficult to get their email address or be able to uh, mm. uh, to, to reach them. But I try to do that. Um, I kind of cringe when I send out a review of a book that I didn't like very much to the author, but I still do it, in fairness. Uh, and I invite them to comment if they like. Um, but as you may have noticed, my reviews tend to be fairly long. And so uh, probably the, the, the greatest uh, compliment uh, that I've ever received was... Uh, when I, uh, when I uh, reviewed uh, Drew Gilpin Faust's book, um, and she was the president of Harvard at one time, and she wrote a wonderful book about the Civil War called The Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, which about how, how death was dealt with. It was such a, the experience of suddenly having these, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of dead young people in America, which had never happened before. And so she wrote this book. It was really insightful. Anyway, I sent her a copy of it and she thanked me for the review and essay. Um, and I thought that was a wonderful compliment. So I, you know, I changed the title of the, the, uh, the blog to reviews and essays to incorporate that. And, and so I do tend to think about it that because it isn't just the review of the book. It's usually a conversation about the topic that's involved. And that's another way where I think my my reviews tend to be different from most people's book reviews. I love, so I, I realize you're, you're newer to podcasting with your, um, you put yes. your, essentially it's a, you essentially do a, a review in a podcast. I love your podcast and here's why. Well, thank you. Here's why. Um, somebody told me, I don't even remember who it was. Somebody told me that they loved my podcast because I sounded like an average guy who was intelligent. Right? That's a great compliment. Yep. That's a great you compliment. You sound like an average relatable person who's also intelligent. Honestly. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. That's certainly the goal because I mean no one's going to listen to the thing if you if you uh if, if you come off wrong to your audience. Like if you were George, if you sounded like George Plimpton talking to me about Leopold's ghost, I don't know that I'd care. Or that's not the right word, but it wouldn't... That's it wouldn't be as relatable. Happen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I get it. And, and, and exactly. I mean, I think that... I mean, one of the issues is I think a lot of people don't read, honestly, because they believe that it's far too challenging for them to read. And you have people you talk to. One of the things that always shock me is when I talk to somebody who used to read a lot of books but doesn't anymore. And I was like, you know, why? And and usually it's, well, I don't have the time is, is usually the standard answer, which is not really a very good answer. But I could see that because a lot of people think that they have yeah. to devote a specific segment of their life to reading. Um, 
which which I mean, certainly you do have there's time involved. But the question yeah. is, is, you know, we all have the same amount of time. Right. And so what do you do at that time? So it isn't like, you know, you, you can't do anything else. It isn't like you can't watch television or you can't go for a walk or you can't do other things with your life or run your business as I do. But, you know, it, it's really good for the brain. I, I usually, I often will, will post things on social media where I, you know, I say uh, that uh, books are, uh, are, are, are brain food, uh, feed that hungry brain. That and uh, yeah, it is, right? And it makes yeah. you think. Um, now the way I read a lot of books, which is different from the way most people do, is I usually read between five and eight books at the same time on a variety of different topics, which, um, you, you know, I don't know if you'd, you'd like to hear what I'm currently reading, but, but I mean, I the would point love is, to hear what you're reading. Okay. All right. So current, and by the way, I own all the books I read. I never read anybody else's book or take a book out of the library or read anything on, uh, on e-ink on an e-reader. I read only books that I own and I buy, if I want to read a book, I buy it. Um, so currently here's the eight books that I'm reading, which is going to sound crazy because None of them are alike one another. So the first one is The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans by Cynthia Barnett. And she's wonderful. I, I read her book Rain, which was just so terrific that I, um, that I thought I had to read this. Um, I'm reading a book called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine by Jim Downs. He's a doctor who's writing about how epidemiology began by studying people who were enslaved or in prison or or in army hospitals, and that you know they never that's get any actually, of the credit. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where the information came from. Yeah. And so he does. I'm I'm in the middle of the book right now, but he does a whole chapter on Florence Nightingale, who he 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 says is you know unfairly characterized as a nurse primarily when she was primarily a statist. I can't say it. Statistician. Statistician. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I words you can read but can't pronounce. So, yeah, so that's so that's it. So, um anyway, so that's fascinating. So that's the second one. The third one is a book that I just began recently called The Gates of Europe: A History of Ukraine. And I know I'm going to kill the guy's name. It's uh, Serhiy Ploki. I but I'm sure that's incorrectly pronounced. Um but it's uh you know, I've always wanted to read a history of Ukraine and current events have certainly more or less pushed that up the list. So, uh, we, we all have what we call a TBR, you know, to be read list. And so that kind of pushed that up the list. Um, then I'm reading uh, After the Apocalypse, America's Role in the World Transformed by Andrew uh, Basevich. He's written a number of books. He's a, a disillusioned former uh, a Vietnam Army officer uh, who had a long career in the military until Iraq. And uh, he, uh, uh, he he's a great writer as well, talking about, you know, where America tends, from his view, has gone wrong with its military. Um, I, I'm, I'm reading a very controversial book called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth by three authors, uh, Burrow, Tomlinson, and Stanford. Uh, this is a book that's interesting because it's the true story of what Texas independence and the Alamo were about. And uh, these guys tried to do a presentation at the Alamo and basically right-wing protests drove them away so they couldn't do the the, the uh, presentation, as to the best of my knowledge, that's the story. Um, the sixth book is Geology, a very short introduction by another guy's name I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly butcher. It's uh, Jan uh, Zalisowitz or something of that nature. Um, just a science book. I like to read science books, and I like to read above my level in science. 
So I don't get it all because I'm not smart enough to understand science the way I understand history and literature, but I try to challenge myself with that. Um, then I'm reading a book uh, called, uh, uh, we mentioned earlier, I'm reading the fiction one, Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, which got me really interested because I'd read, you know, Into the Heart of the Earth. So naturally, I wanted to go back and read the fiction book that he used as, the, as his chapter guidelines. And then finally, I'm reading a really unusual book, Bogart. It's a biography of Humphrey Bogart by Sperber and Lax. And uh, while I'm reading the book, I'm also watching the bogey movies in order. So I started with uh, The Petrified Forest, 1936, which was his first big breakout role. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gone through the Casablanca, Maltese Falcon and whatever. And I'm, I'm, in the, I'm into the 1940s, the late 1940s now. But it's kind of a fun thing to do. That's like my before I go to bed at night book. But anyway, so there's eight books going there. So when I tell people this, their reaction typically is, how can you, how is it that you, you can keep these straight in your head? How is it that you're not confused? So, and my answer to that is that I'm unlikely to get, you know, a history of things that happened in the history of Ukraine uh, mixed up with the bogey movies or, um, you know, geology. Okay. Um, how long was bogey around? As well, a... he, he was born in 1899, and he died of a, a tragically of a terrible throat cancer in 1957. He was a very he was still a young man when he did, um, and he was a guy who struggled through most of his life. Uh, he came from a privileged background, uh, and he struggled uh, to become an actor, and largely was given a whole series of terrible roles until the Petrified Forest, and then even after that, he got a lot of really poor roles until he, you know, really Casablanca made him a star. Um, and which, by the way, I got to see on the big screen for the first time. There was a, uh, uh, for the 80th anniversary, they uh, they did a uh, Casablanca showing at the theaters around the country a few weeks ago, and I got to see it on the big screen, which was really exciting for me. Hmm. So, yeah, he's one of my favorite, I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, honestly. Like, he did uh, The Big Sleep, Big Sleep, yep. Just watched that again recently. That's uh, so good. Yeah, uh, to have and have not. The stuff he did with uh, with uh, Lauren Bacall was amazing. And, you know, he, he got together with her when she was 19 and he was in his 40s. It's kind of today they'd be especially controversial. But um, but at the time, uh, you know, it was they, they actually legitimately fell madly in love. And, uh, you know, she uh, she survived him by many decades dying uh you know in her i think she was 89 or something when she died a few years ago but um but you know it was a big that was a big piece of her life was the time they spent together and he it, it it's kind of sad in many ways when you think about it because he uh uh you know he became famous with uh uh the maltese maltese falcon in uh, 1941 and casablanca 1942 and then you know he died 15 years later so he really he had a very short career as a star but he was in dozens and dozens of movies and usually you know one if you if you i don't know if you like to just randomly watch movies on amazon prime but i do because you can rent mm -hmm. anything and mm -hmm. uh so the other night i watched dead end 1937 it's got the bowery boys in it you know the dead end kids and uh mm -hmm. and joel mccray is the star bogey's like just got kind of a secondary role he's really nobody he's just kind of like a no good gangster but it's it's typical that 
he had many, many roles like that where he was really underutilized. And he did his, he does his, he's great in the role, but it's really underutilized for Bogey now that we know, you know, the greater breadth of his talent. So, anyway. Who, what movie was it I was watching? And it was like Billy Bob Thornton was in it, but it was like way before Billy Bob Thornton was Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I don't know, but I know what you're saying, what you're getting at. It's there's a lot of you. Sometimes you can see that incredible talent yeah. early on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, the whole the whole reason I mentioned Bogey really wasn't to to go off on a tangent with him, but but it's fine because I love talking about Bogey. But the point is, is that all of these books that I listed, these eight books that I'm currently reading, they're all very different from one another, um, and so they all feed that hungry brain with different kinds of information. Uh, and so you know, we've got everything from you know. Why? What kind of impact have seashells had on uh, on on American? I mean, on on world history, to uh, you know, disease and you know, epidemiology and you know, the history of the Ukraine and the American military and the Alamo and you know, so there's a whole there's a whole realm of things. And this is what I try to encourage people who haven't been reading in a long time and want to start reading again. You know, I tell them just pick anything up. And, you know, you, you, one of the reasons I read eight books at the same time, or, or usually it's more like five, I'm kind of out of control right now. But one of the reasons I do it is because a lot of these books are not great cover to cover reads. You're going to lose interest, especially the, you know, the 600 page nonfiction books. So it's kind of cool if you sit down and read a chapter in each one. And, that, and so you're, it's kind of like being in school. You're taking a course in geology and you're taking a course in uh, European history and you're taking a course in American history. You know what I'm saying? So you're getting a little bit of information yeah. in on all these things. It's, it's very eclectic and it makes you think. And that's the whole purpose of reading to me is to make you think. You know, you're absolutely right. There was a book I read uh, years ago. It was assigned to me by a professor. Um who worked in the intelligence intelligence community before he was a professor. Okay. And there was a book he gave, he assigned, which was about asymmetrical thinking yep. in the world. Yep. And it was just about like, it make, it wasn't like a, the fact pattern wasn't really what made me, it was what made me like, remember it. What made me remember it was the author's whole point was you have to these leaders they think like it's chess like they're right. playing chess yep and you got to play chess with them <laughs> yeah you want to find out what's going on absolutely no i mean but, you, it, it, it's amazing yeah. how your brain is stimulated by reading a book even mm -hmm. if you don't do anything else with it mm-hmm you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm just, you know, we talked about before about how um, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. But for instance, you know, I read a, a wonderful biography of Napoleon by Adam Zamoyski. It's probably like the best single volume uh, book on it. And that's reviewed on my book blog. And, you know, the interesting thing about Napoleon, he, he was a weirdo. He was a really strange guy. He was socially awkward. He, he didn't have good hygiene. He spoke French with a, with a terrible accent. He, you know, it was kind of, but yet this guy changed world history more than anyone else since you, you could argue Julius Caesar, you know? So, but yet if I mean, you look at him as an individual, it, it's, it's someone, you know, you would never be able to, if you met somebody like this, you'd never think a guy like this would end up absolutely altering the map of Europe. 
if you think about it, if you think about it, it's like Napoleon, Hitler, FDR. I mean, you know, they're unusual individuals in in terms of changing history. Yeah. 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 They're unusual. They're, they're, they're unusual people. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the, the most frightening thing is, is when you read about Hitler and you read about his group of, uh, of, of fellow Nazis, you know, before they took power, these guys were the misfits of, of the country. Like they, they were, they were the kinds of people that if you met them at a party, you would say, what a bunch of losers, all of them, like the entire group. They're the kind of people that you might make fun of politically in a free society and say, how is it possible? And we have, I'm not going to say any names, but, uh, but you know, there's certainly people that you could look at today in Congress and go, how is it possible that somebody like this actually is in the House of Representatives? I mean, that's just incredible, right? But these, mm-hmm. Hitler and his coterie, this is exactly what they were like. They were the ultimate losers. They were weirdos. They're really strange individuals. And then, you know, when they took power, they took themselves very seriously and, you know, unfortunately, you know, wielded tremendous violence on the world mm. and, was, and, you know, resulted in millions of dead. But mm. it's, there's no reason to ever suspect that people like this would ever have been able to take the reins of power anywhere, never mind in a, in, you know, in a major European nation. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I think that that's, that's one of the thought processes mm. that you have to have. You have to wonder, um, you know, I read a lot of biographies of the United States presidents. And I don't read them primarily because of the president himself, but usually because a really good biography of a president puts the individual in context of his times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned FDR and um, and, you know, I recently read and, and also reviewed uh, on the blog there uh, a, a great book on F, by F, on FDR called uh, Franklin Roosevelt, a, a Political Life by Robert Dalek. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and so Dalek's it's a big, thick book, but Dalek's uh, approach is to look at FDR primarily as a politician, uh, which, by the way, in order to be successful in, in politics, you have to be a politician, you know, regardless of what you want to say. Um, but what's interesting about it is, is that when, when you when you look at a president from this perspective, a, a historian who writes a book about a president puts him in context with the time that he lived in. So it helps you understand the 20s, the 30s, the 40s far better than, you know, if you're if you're then as if you were reading a regular textbook, for instance, because you have a focus, you have a human being, you have someone who actually walked the earth, who you might have met at a party or at a bar or somewhere else, a person who, you know, impacted American history. Mm. Yeah, like, um, do you think, let me ask you this. What type? So FDR was a type of person who existed in a time when that type of person could have become president, right? Much like his cousin uh, Theodore, right? Yeah, yeah. Existed in a time when he could, when a person like that could become president. So, do you think like we're in this time? Are we looking for media stars? Are we looking for? What do you think the average American, whoever that is, whatever that looks like in 2022, like, who do you think they're looking for when they're when they're looking for a president? I think all Americans are always looking for the same thing. They're looking for someone who's going to reassure them and they're looking for someone who they can either credit or blame. And it's always been that way. So it's, you know, it's easy for us sometimes to bemoan our own times. And certainly social networking has 
has has you know it's 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 obscene the way social networking has kind of colored politics in many ways but but ultimately if you look back to um you know you know steve campbell um mm -hmm. wrote that mm -hmm. wonderful book on the bank war with but mm -hmm. if you look back on that time you look at andrew jackson who was you know a fairly malevolent fellow despite the fact that for many years you know he he, he got a pass and was treated as some kind of a hero in, in american history he was a pretty malevolent fellow and he did some significant damage and one might argue that without jackson there might never have been a civil war um with some of the damage that he that he created um but the point mm -hmm. is is that uh, if you look at what he did back in his time and the way uh, he used his cronies to take over newspapers and be able to use and use the postal service to spread these newspapers into every corner to, you know, change the political color of the dialogue that was going on at the time. So, you know, this kind of stuff's always been going on. It's just in a different format today. Um, you know, so an FDR could become president today, despite the fact that you might think it'd be unusual, but it could happen. Um, a Theodore Roosevelt could become president today. Uh, JFK became president in 19, you know, in 1961. Uh, uh, certainly also a very unusual figure. Most of the presidents that we have, um, are you could not group them and say, well, this is a guy who would, I, would ever expected to become president. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that recently as well. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, who would have expected that George W. Bush, uh, Obama, or Trump would ever have become president. Whatever you might think about those three individuals, be it you know positive or negative or or neither, neither one of these individuals would would if you if you studied them before they became president, would you ever believe that? Well, you know, it's un, it seemed highly unlikely that any of those three individuals would ever become president. There's other people where you look back and you think, well, Dwight Eisenhower. Okay, we just World War II is over, right? And this guy's a general and he's famous and, you know, he fits right into the mold there. He's not a politician, but he's the kind of guy that you think, well, yeah, that's a guy who could become president. Uh, but most of them, that's not the case, you know, and you go all the way back, arguably Lincoln. Lincoln's a really good example, probably the greatest president. Most historians would, 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 would uh, place uh, Lincoln at the very top of the totem pole of presidents as the greatest president we've ever had. And that's a guy who it was completely unlikely. I mean, he served one term in the House of Representatives. You know, mm -hmm. he he had no, he was almost unknown. And he'd spent his whole life, you know, as an autodidact, learning himself. He was a polymath in many ways. He was really intelligent. But still, what would you ever expect that this guy would become president? And then when he became president, who would ever expect that he would become the greatest president, that he would, you know, unite the country uh, for better or for worse, uh, in his leadership during the Civil War. Certainly members of his cabinet didn't believe that. If you read anything about, um, you know, Lincoln and his cabinet, his cabinet all thought he was some kind of idiot for the most part. No one believed that he was yeah. the great man that he was. Well, um, do you think, so it, I, I think it's difficult to generalize. Yeah. Do you think, let me ask you this, do you think, you mentioned Lincoln, do you think Lincoln's rise to the presidency had anything at all to do with the fact that the Whig party was imploding? Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah. the main reason Lincoln became president is because the, uh, he wasn't on the ballot in, uh, in any of the Southern states, you know, the, the party system, the party system had ended 
So certainly the, the fact that his his name was not on the ballot and that, you know, it was on the ballot in the most popular states in the country and not on the ballot in the least in many of the least popular states. That certainly played a role. The breakdown of the of the two party system uh, absolutely, uh, you know, played a role. But I mean, it, honestly, the, the 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 fact about Lincoln is just that he was, you know, he was an unusual person who happened to be in the right place at the right time and then took advantage of the circumstances around him. I often compare um, as presidents, JFK and, and Lincoln. Um, and that's surprising mm -hmm. to some people because uh, you know a lot of people wouldn't put JFK at the same level uh, of Lincoln. Although I, 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 put him, I put him way up there only because without JFK's leadership in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we probably all wouldn't be here. But, but the point true. is, is that, but the point is, is that, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever you want, whatever, whatever else you want to say about JFK. But if you read them, what's interesting about there's a lot of parallels between Lincoln and JFK. Uh, they were both very witty personalities. Um, they were both brilliant men, brilliant, absolutely brilliant on so many levels. Um, but most importantly, both of them evolved as president. And Lincoln, if you look at Lincoln, you know, we tend to remember Lincoln, the Lincoln who was assassinated in in 1865, just as we tend to remember the JFK as the man who who, who was killed in in, eight, in uh, 1963, but the three of them, their point of views, the way they felt about the world, the way their their political philosophies, their own personal ideology, it, it changed dramatically. You know, you had Lincoln, as for example, who initially was someone who you know was certainly willing to uh, let slavery endure. That that was not, you know, that was not a, uh, a non-negotiable point for him. He was someone who believed in uh, colonization of African Americans, um, you know, to to oppose, you know, to uh, uh, prevent race mixing. Um, he also, uh, um, you know, in many ways, he he changed his views on how the war should be prosecuted. Now, if you juxtapose that with JFK, I'll go back to the slavery thing. So with JFK, it was civil rights. So you had JFK begin as president, really somewhat agnostic on civil rights, really had never had a lot of contact with African-Americans, wasn't personally racist, but really didn't care, you know, really just was agnostic is the best word for it. And yet, you know, had he lived, there's no doubt that in, uh, you know, when he won, he almost certainly would have won a second term. It, in his second term, his plan was to to roll out this massive civil rights program, which ended up in, uh, in LBJ's hands. But, you know, he, he certainly evolved. And I love reading biographies of both Lincoln and Kennedy because they're such fascinating individuals and they kind of reflect America and how and they reflect people who are thinking people who are willing to change. You know, they're willing to evolve. They're willing to change their thoughts. Um, and, you know, I think about this in uh, in terms of myself. I, I'm going to be 65 years old soon, believe it or not, even though I wake up every morning thinking I'm 25. Um, and I think about how my own views have evolved over the years on things. And my own sense of tolerance has increased over the years from what it used to be. And that's what you're supposed to do. Um, there's a, uh, I'm not a religious person at all, but there's a great, um, there's a great writer, uh, Teilhard de Chardin. And he wrote a book called uh, The Phenomenon of Man. And most of the book is, is you know, theology and, uh, um, and some of it is just fantasy about his beliefs of, of, of how the, the world works. But what always stayed with me with this book, which I read in religious studies class at Fairfield U back in the early 1980s, was that he said that every day you wake up a different person than you were yesterday. Every day you wake up 
with yesterday's experiences added into your total amount of experiences as a human being. And so every day you are, are moving, you're developing, you're evolving. And either you're going to let yourself evolve or you're not. And if you let yourself evolve based on your, your experiences of yesterday, you're going to become a better human being today. I always thought that was just a wonderful philosophy to, to use for life. You know, and when you widen that out just a bit, or actually a good bit, so right before I hopped on this podcast with you, I was listening to, uh, there's a new episode of This American Life Out. Uh-huh. Uh, the podcast or the radio show slash podcast, This American Life. And they were talking about school and how school has changed, like fundamentally. Yeah. And the thing that, they, that all these teachers all over the country and parents all over the country have said is they don't think we're going to go back to 2019 as far as schooling is yep. concerned. I think that's probably there's a there's a good there's a good argument for that. And well, I mean, you know, I can see it in society. I I can see it, you know, just in the world even. And we were talking about how busy people are, you know, earlier yep. in the show. Yeah. One thing as a podcaster who just talks to average people, yeah, that I've noticed is people have free time. They they don't necessarily think of it as free time, per se. But people do have free time. People have free time. They also are under tremendous amount of stress um, that they didn't used to have pre-technology because there's there's it's very difficult to cut yourself off. I mean, one of the you know, I know several people, including my 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 adult children who telecommuted during the the pandemic. Um, But the one thing about today with technology is you really cannot cut the cord with, uh, with with work. Um, and I remember at a family event with my my adult yeah. daughter and son, uh, we had a couple beers and we were chatting about, you know, what life was like back in the ancient 80s. And I was talking about how I used to come home from work and, uh, you know, we didn't, there was no cell phone. There was no way to reach me except the home phone, that landline. Right. And I had a I had voicemail on the answering machine. And so somebody would call me from work with a question or ask me if I could come back to work or I could do something or whatever. And I could just simply ignore it. I could just say I never got the message. Sorry, I was out. You know, there was no way for them ever to really check on me. And, and by the way, I did that. I had a job I, I, I hated at the time and I, I and I had no respect for the, the person I worked for. And so I really didn't care. But you can't do that today because you, you it's obvious you're lying if you say that, you know, you didn't get the text or you didn't see the email or you missed the call. Right. Somebody knows that, that you know, they can reach you. And I think that that has uh, has propelled a lot of Americans into and I mean, not just Americans, but across the world, a lot of people into a into a sense of uh, of stress that definitely is is a shadows uh, for is a shadow over your that free time that leisure time that you have yeah. uh, because you can't really people can't really relax another point i wanted to make was that you had mentioned earlier about you'd asked me a couple of questions about what i thought um, and one of them was you know what we'd be looking for in a president and and what uh, you know what the future might hold and you know one of my uh, being in the computer business um, I, I would say that this period of time that we're going through, this technology revolution that we're going through that kind of began for most people in the 90s, it began before that, but for most people 
it had an impact on their life in the 90s and forward with uh, GPS, cell phones, email, computers, smartphones, all this stuff. Mm. Um, this is very similar to the Industrial Revolution as far as how that shaped and changed society and the stress that it that it uh it it it, it lent to it and so i i see that as future historians you know if we don't blow the world up in a couple hundred years looking back on this this is going to be like the dawn of the industrial revolution people are going to look at how the technology revolution that began uh for most people in the 90s how that impacted people psychologically economically politically, you know, right across the spectrum. Um, and now the latest element to that certainly is social networking, because one might argue that Donald Trump never could have been elected president in 2016 without social networking. Um, and, you know, that's you could argue that it is a, as a pro or a con, but you really wouldn't be able to argue that for any previous election. Well, the one thing, and I think you're totally right, and I wouldn't even say the parallel is the Industrial Revolution. I'd go even deeper than that. I would say it's like, this is like when man figured out, went from a hunter-gatherer to a to an agrarian situation, right? Because depending on how willing you are to to incorporate technology into your world, like you could go work, you could be in your bedroom and go work in in india or germany or wherever right and you could have i i call them virtual relationships i have virtual friendships with yeah. people all over the world now i i um, do too i do too i mean you and i have never met and not, you know we, we, we know each other through, right we know each other through twitter and podcast and the phone yeah, and what have you and that's yeah. the case yeah yeah, and I don't know. Do. I was, I was reading your blog one one fine morning, and I was like, I have got to get this man on my podcast. Well, I, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 so glad that I'm here. And honestly, you know, the the main like I said, the I I my blog, I don't make any money out of it at all. You know, and maybe one day I will, but that's not the reason I do it. Whether I do or not, that or the podcast. Now, my main thing is is I like the idea of sharing information. I like the I like the idea of stimulating other people's brains. So if anyone listening to this podcast today uh, wants a takeaway from it, you know, I'm going to say, you know, go to the go to the Regard book blog and pick out a book. And there's an index page also. So you can like you know, index by subject and look whatever you want. But you can just kind of scroll through it and pick out one. And the nice thing about it also is, is that you don't have to read the book. In some cases, reading the review is enough, which is yeah. one of the reasons why it's why it's long enough. Like that, that's why I do long reviews, because let's face it, we can't possibly read all the books that we want to read. Um, there's that old adage, you know, so many, so many books, so little time. And that's true. And I remember, you know, mm. crazy enough thinking in my teens when I was really read even a lot more than I read now, because I read a lot of fiction then. I remember thinking, I remember calculating one strange day, like if I read so many books a year and lived to be 90 years old, how many books I could read, which is kind of kind of funny but when you think about it and then the older you get of course the calculations change but the point is is that you really you think about you know what's out there and so you want to think about what what's important to you so people ask me for instance why do i read more nonfiction than fiction and you know nothing against fiction and i do read fiction from time to time and i've got a fairly strong background in literature 
from the past. But I read a lot of nonfiction primarily because I want to learn new things. And mm -hmm. it's you, you, you can only learn so much in, in from reading fiction. Um, but you're going to learn a lot when you read nonfiction. And you're going to any and you don't even have to finish the book. That's the other thing. You know, if you look at one of the pages of my book of my blog says current reads and it has the list of those eight books I just read to you. But beneath that, it also has a long list of books I began and didn't finish. So sometimes I abandon a book and, you know, sometimes people are like, well, they feel really guilty about not finishing it. And I do, too, sometimes. But the point is, is that mm -hmm. sometimes reading a third of the book is enough. Sometimes you've learned enough about the Phoenicians that you can put that book down and move on to something else and, and read about the Hittites or the Babylonians or something, you know? So you don't have to, you don't have to feel that you have to finish every book that you start. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, part of it, of course, is you have to, you have to love books to, to, to embark on this. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a fine personal library. I have, um, uh, as of this morning, 2,756 books on bookshelves, not that I'm counting, but the, the point is, is that, <laughs> The point is, is that you have to love books to some degree to do it. And I think there's a lot of people out there who do love books, but have lost that connection. It's something they used to really like. They used to really enjoy, but they've lost that connection to it because other things have taken the place of that. And so, you know, I encourage those people, you know, just pick up a book and read. And you can have a book in the bathroom and you can have a book next to your bed and you can have a book in your car. Everyone should have a book in their car. So when you go to a doctor's office or you go to wherever you go and you're in line waiting for something, instead of just stupidly looking at your phone and scrolling through Instagram, you got a book to read. Um, so that's, the, yeah. I, and I mean, I feel more passionately about this, obviously, listening to me. A lot of people would be like, you know, what's up with this guy? Like, why, why, why does he love books so much? But, but for me, I get so much out of it. It's so inspiring to me. I learn so much. And that's why I do the book blog. And that's why I would encourage people who aren't mm -hmm. reading a lot to start. And to start, all you got to do is pick up that first book. I want to ask you a question. I want to okay. I want to switch gears here. Okay. Because I don't think I'm going to meet anybody as technologically savvy as you are, but is also as old as you are, at least for a while. So let me ask you a question. If you could give advice to say somebody in their 20s or 30s about the world like you you lived in the in the analog world as an adult yeah right yeah and so here you are in the digital world as an adult right right so if you could give advice to somebody in their 20s or 30s or maybe even early 40s as far as like what what would you do to remain grounded because on the one hand, it's like, like I know people in Ukraine now, but on the other hand, it's like, I got to worry about, you know, things happening next door, stuff happening across the street, whatever. So how would you remain grounded in, in your present moment? Well, I think the, the most important advice to give to anyone in their 20s is to use dental floss. As a okay. first group, number one, before before you talk about anything else, because they they'll appreciate that if they take that advice, they'll really appreciate that twenty or thirty years later. But um, the the second piece of advice I would give is that one thing that we didn't have when I was a kid and growing up and growing up in the analog world, um, I grew up watching a watching I Dream of Genie on a black and white TV, which by the way you can still see on Amazon Prime if you like. But um, the 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 point is is that you know back then getting information you had to work to get information. 
So I remember I, my, my grandmother buying me my first world book encyclopedia and later a Britannic encyclopedia and going to the library. And you really needed to, you know, you really needed to, uh, uh, to, to do some work to learn things. You couldn't just, you know, you, you, you couldn't just say, hey, you know, I wonder what really went on in the Belgian Congo. You know, what, what really happened, right? You had to do some research to get that. Now today, that information is literally at your fingertips. And I have a friend who always famously says, and sometimes he accompanies it with, uh, um, with an obscenity. He'll say, just Google it. Um, and you can figure out where that would, would go into the sentence. But the point is, is that you can Google it and you can get the information, but what is the quality of that information? And to me, that's the most important piece of advice to people in their, to young people in their teens, in their 20s, whatever it is, you know, all information is not equal. This notion that that somebody develops somewhere along the line that every that all point of views are should be respected is, is not true. All point of views should not be respected. Not to say you should take a pitchfork to the person who's spewing it. Everyone has a right to say what they want, but all, all point of view is not legitimate, right? Mm. And so you have to qualify where you're getting your information from. And this has been a big problem, like, and it's still a big problem right now with vaccines, for instance, where you have people doing their own research. They're not, you know, Florence Nightingale would be would, would smack them. But the point is, is that, you know, all data is not is not legitimate or all data shouldn't be weighted the same way. Just because somebody yeah. has some kind of title and they appear uh, somewhere does not mean the, the information that they're giving you is correct. I remember when they were um, when they were trying to pass laws to, uh, uh, to and, and I'm sure you do, you remember this as well. I used to be a cigarette smoker. I used to smoke three packs a day. I quit 25 years ago, but I remember when I smoked, it seemed to me like it was my right as an American to smoke cigarettes wherever I wanted. And then they discovered that, you know, what you weren't just giving yourself cancer, but that secondhand smoke was very, very dangerous. So mm. there was a, a huge effort made uh, from the top down, you know, locally and in Congress and mm. everywhere else to, to curb smoking. What I'm getting at here is that, um, what, what you had is you had the tobacco companies paying people who were scientists, they had a title, to appear mm. and testify saying that smoking did not cause lung cancer. Now, unless you, you know, followed this in the New York Times as I did, most people didn't know this. You know, they just saw the end result. Today, you would see this in real time. This guy testifying would be on Twitter. He'd be on Facebook. Mm. He'd be on Instagram. He'd be in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. You'd see it. If you Googled it, it would come up, right? And the question is, is so how do you evaluate this information? Is this guy's data legitimate? Uh, is this guy's point of view important enough to outweigh the point of view of other people? And this is where this whole idea of, you know, everyone has a right to their opinion and everyone should all, all you know, we should give a balance. And, you know, you have somebody, you have a TV show where they're presenting information on global warming. And then, uh, you know, they decide that in order to be fair and balanced, we're going to bring on somebody who doesn't accept uh, anthropogenic climate change. And this is a person mm -hmm. who's totally unqualified to speak for the mass of global scientists despite they might have a title of some type, but they're completely unqualified. But for whatever reason, it's felt that in the interest of fairness, we need to feature this person. Um, and, and that's not true. You and I did a podcast once on the lost cause, right? If, yes, you're in a civil, if, if you're in a civil war group, and there's been many civil war groups on Facebook and elsewhere that have been destroyed by lost cause fanatics, people who are trying to sell the idea that slavery was not the central cause of the civil war, they take over these groups and they, and they spew propaganda. 
and they claimed that slavery was benign and that, you know, there were there were thousands mm. of, of, of black soldiers fighting for the Confederacy and all this nonsense. So but, you know, what you do is you, you, you have to you have to kick these people out of the group. You can't let people like that because they're going to just poison everyone's mind with their disinformation campaign. And it's the same thing elsewhere. So, I mean, maybe I'm giving you a longer answer than you were looking for. My point is, is that I think it's critical that young people evaluate the data. There's so much data. What is the value of that data? You know, who who are hearing it from and what is the validity? So for me, um, when I used to do my podcast episodes on COVID, there was a lab out of Singapore that was uh, basically they were releasing their data to the public. Yep. To the just the general public. Right. And the CDC used to do that, but the CDC no longer does that. Yep. Um, but you're so I have a Google ad campaign. And you're absolutely right. And this is a conversation I have sometimes several times a week about how people think Google is a university. Right. But it's really not. It's, it's a way to disseminate ads to people. And it's just so honestly, it's tragic. It is. We took this thing. We basically outsourced education to a company without meaning to do that. Right. And, and I mean, part of it, I don't think it was, it wasn't deliberate as much as it just kind of evolved this way because you had all this data. Yeah, it right? just happened. It didn't... I mean, just because somebody's <laughs> listening to me and you have this conversation today, it doesn't mean that what you and I are saying necessarily have any more validity than anybody else says, except for based on, on you know, what we're discussing and what our credentials are. So you can weigh that and you could say, well, you know, Ben's a podcaster and he's been doing this for some time. So he knows something about podcasts. Stan's got a master's in history. He's been studying the Civil War for years. You know, he's doing this book blog. He knows a bit about the Civil War. So you could say that. But, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And, and, and I just think it's so critical. And, and by the way, this isn't just advice for people in their 20s. I would give this advice, especially, to yeah, especially though, yeah. to older Americans. Because older mm -hmm. Americans are so confused by what's happened. Because everything changed so dramatically. So if you're like in your 80s, in the last 25 years, everything has changed. Everything that you knew, and you were already a kind of a crotchety middle-aged person who thought you knew what the hell was going on. And now the world is completely different. And so you don't know how to take this information. And, you know, and this is another reason, by the way, by the way, why I encourage people to read. Because people generally, you can read books by nuts as well. But in general, there's a lot of good books out there by people who have credentials and know what yeah. they're talking about, you know? Yeah. And you, and you need to, again, balance that. You know, I mean, look, there's people who don't believe that, you know, that there actually is a flat earth society. And those people really believe the earth is flat. And there's more and more people today who actually believe that the moon landing was faked. Um, and, and, yeah. and it's because that information is out there. And there's a YouTube video that shows, you know, astronauts in a studio. Yeah. Um, so my, so I ahead. have a master's degree, too. Um, yeah. My master's in, is in history as well. Yeah. And my last project for my master's degree, I was going to talk to young people about the challenges they saw in basically Metro Atlanta, where I live. Yeah. Um, what I ended up talking about or what they ended up talking about with me, a lot of them, not all of them for sure, but a lot of them 
was something I recognize today as QAnon. Yep. And yep. I was just like, I remember, I remember like talking to my professor, like down in Savannah over the phone being like, I don't know what to do. They're talking about, you know, blah, blah. I didn't even know what to call it. Yeah. To me, I just thought, well, this is a story. This is a movie they saw. This is something. Yep. Right. And she just said basically to to ignore it for the purposes of the research. But to me, it's like this whole counter revolution essentially sprung up out of nowhere under everybody's nose. Yep. And <laughs> yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's a it's, it's very frustrating. So, I mean, you can't make people, you know, evaluate their information. But that's if you ask me what I, what what I would say, what I would tell people, mm. that's what I would tell people. Evaluate your information and don't believe that, you know. And I mean, the other thing is, is there's just a lot of people and you see this a lot on the right today where there's a lot of people who just really their first inclination is to believe in conspiracies. And by the way, you also see it on the left. Maybe it's not as pronounced. But I remember the, uh, you know, one of the one of the big causes on the on the left, and I and, I, and I, I'm certainly closer in that direction politically. But one of the big causes on the left at one point, which is kind of, you know, dissipated, was the anti-GMO project, you know, um, which which was based on this this conspiracy theory, this belief that you know Monsanto was trying to poison everyone, and you know, it turns out that you know there's I don't want to get dig deeply into the subject, but there's, there's no scientific evidence that GMOs overall are bad for you. I mean, every, a GMO is just, you know, a modified organism and one might be bad for you, but many of them might not be there. You have to look at them yeah. individually. You can't generalize. Right. But, but it fell, especially to, to young people who were in the left side of the spectrum there, it fell into that conspiracy theory belief. And you see that on the right today with the belief that somehow, you know, vaccine misinformation is being pumped on them. Um, and, mm. and so, I, I mean, I think it's, mm. first of all, in, in the most, in most cases, there is no conspiracy there. Conspiracies may exist, but yeah. in general, I would say that 99.9% .9 of the world is not a conspiracy. Um, and right. people who believe in conspiracies and, and you mentioned QAnon because QAnon is based entirely on, on just a fantasy conspiracy theory. People who are, are likely to be attracted to conspiracy theories, they're most likely to be attracted to extreme politics on the left or the right because they just believe that there's a simple answer. Mm -hmm. I don't have to think. It's, 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 it's yeah. us against them. They're trying to get us, and we have to do whatever we can to resist them. Um, and, and, of course, the world is... One thing, if you have a degree in history, you know that um, one of the things we talk about in, in grad school is that uh, history is nuance and complexity. It's 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 rarely it's rarely ever a black or white, right? I mean, it's it's nuance and complexity. It's also like the way I say it is. So I had a a roommate early in my college career. I had a roommate who was getting a uh, bachelor's in um, biology. Yeah, and he, I, I still know him today. He is one of the most fascinating people I've ever run into, but he used to talk to me about the evolution of, of humans like at night. Yeah. And I was just like, this is so fascinating. Like, yep. How in the world is this not, I don't know. It's just amazingly fascinating to me. Yeah. But so my slant on history is like, if you take a predator like us, cause we're technically a predator. Yeah. If you take a predator 
and then you give that predator like primacy over or by by some arguments primacy over much of the world's surface yeah and so how does that play out but also give that predator uh, like a sentience or a conscience or, or whatever yeah and how does that play out in the world but we're still yeah. an animal that eats and right and right. has yeah, territorial issues and whatever of course I mean, yes <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's it is fascinating, yeah. and and it, I mean, and, and by the way, human evolution is, and a couple of, on my book blog, there's 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 a couple of books on human evolution on the science of it, um, and uh, that's that's one of my one of my personal interests as well, yeah. which by the way is a good example of of where you know how you how you credit good information and bad information, you know, no scientific group that is studying human evolution is going to have a a creationist on 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 their panel. You're not going to have somebody to give balance who's right. going to say that the earth is 6,000 years old. Now, you have a right to believe that. There's no scientific evidence for it. But we don't have, we don't owe that person a voice. We don't owe, if we're talking about legitimate science, we don't owe the person who has no scientific background a voice in order, just to give that person balance, just to give that point of view balance. And that goes back again to the fact that you have to evaluate your data. <laughs> And it doesn't mean yeah. there's, there's there's no more controversial group than than paleontologists, and they're 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 mm. apt to cut each other down in papers. If you read some of their scientific stuff, you know, each one's trying to prove the other one's wrong, but they all have a basis, yeah. a scientific basis, you know. Um, well, I'll, hey, I'll um, give you a yeah. Go ahead. Just before you go, there's yeah. One layup question because you probably have to go because I, I do I, actually. I, I do I've done enough of these to know how much free time somebody has in one sitting. Right. So, <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, but before you go, there's a layup question that I really forgot to ask you. Okay. Why? Why did you call your book blog the Regarp Book Blog? You know, it's kind of you're going to laugh because okay. it is funny. It is. It is funny, but um, okay. so um, it's my last name spelled backwards. <laughs> it's no. it's regard oh. Prager spelled backwards, but but there's, <laughs> there's a secondary element to it. Um, so I uh, um, I my favorite novel, one of my favorite novels of all time, is World According to Garp by John Irving. And I love that uh, movie, it, uh, yeah, the movies. It, it's one of the rare. It's one of the rare films that's that's equally as good as the book that's so 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 rare but i recommend everybody to read the book because actually the book's even better but you can only put so much on the screen it's like taking lord of the rings and turning it into a movie but um but world according to garp was great and i read that and i got to meet john irving at an author event at fairfield university in the 80s and anyway so i often like my one of my emails used to be garp and when i was hiking on the appalachian trail that was my trail name was garp and so you know i've used garp a lot so uh and it didn't i didn't realize until one day that it was you know my part of my name spelled backwards so when i when i decided to create the book blog it just seemed like a natural progression to go with uh, regarp um but yeah it people ask me like what the hell does that mean well what's a regarp and so it's prager yeah. spelled backwards that's it all right folks <laughs> the truth um, is out <laughs> well thank and and um i have faster internet now but just uh leave the tab open but hey everybody um like i always say i'm having a good day and i hope you are too and stan if you could just email me the links so i can put them in the description um but i really enjoy your blog man i really do it's well, really cool 
Well, 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 thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It was great having a conversation with you as always. And uh, I, um, I, I, I love what you're doing. I love, I love your podcast. And I love the fact uh, that you're, that you're reaching to so many different topics. And uh, I, uh, I hope that anyone listening to this, if they're interested in going further, I hope they go to uh, regarp.com and read a review. And I have a contact us on there. And if people want to give me feedback, I, I love feedback. Well, my, my little secret is if it's interesting to me, I'm going to put it out into the world. So, you know. Cool. 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 That's great. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Have a great Just, day. All right, everybody. Bye-bye now. Okay.